Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. I'm David Armstrong, the editorial director of wealthmanagement.com. And as you know, this is my chance to speak to executives and leaders in the investment advisory space who are building the RIAs of the future, firms that we consider growing by design and not by default. And today I'm speaking to Mike Lamina, who is the founder of Wealthspire Advisors, a rapidly growing RIA. Uh, we spoke about his vision for the firm, how he thinks about growth, and more importantly, how his view of growth has changed as the firm has matured. Note that this conversation did take place at the recent Market Council conference, so please forgive what may be some subpar audio quality, but I always learn a lot speaking to Mike, and I think most RIA leaders can learn something from his experiences. With that, here is my conversation with Mike Lamina. Uh, for the folks who don't maybe aren't as familiar, yep. yeah, can you just give a quick background on Wellspire and, and yourself and what you sure. guys are So I'm, I'm the CEO of Wellspire Advisors. Uh, we're 350 people, $25 billion in asset center management. We've got a, a national presence, so we've got a big presence in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, growing presence in Florida. We're in the center of the U.S. with a big presence in Wisconsin, Chicago. And then we've got a meaningful presence on the, on the West Coast as well. You know, our goal and aspiration is to be one of the leading national scale RAAs. We mm -hmm. believe strongly that scale matters in terms of investing in capabilities, resources, technology to really empower advisors to have huge positive impact on the lives of clients that we're fortunate to work with. The demands from clients continue to go up. What they expect, we heard that you know mm -hmm. uh, frequently at this conference that for a decade and a half, I've heard about fee compression. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been realized. What's happened is you have to do a heck of a lot more to meet the demands of clients to justify the fees that you're, you're charging. So I think that ultimately is good for end clients. We do a heck of a lot more today than we did a decade ago. And is it the sort of thing where uh, the economics, if you don't have the scale, makes it very hard to compete? Correct. I think it I, does. And, and I, I'm not one of the believers that, you know, small RAs are going to go out of business. I just mm -hmm. think when you think about the value proposition, you're able to deliver to a high net worth and ultra high net worth individual. You have to have scale to invest in some of the differentiating capabilities. We have in-house trust and estate attorneys, in-house tax advisors. We're not doing tax prep, but we have sophisticated people that with really complex situations for multi-generational families, for business owners. We can provide kind of guidance that really is impactful. We have resources that focus on um, multi-generational families doing family planning because it's not just about transitioning wealth from Gen 1 to Gen 2 or Gen 3 from an efficiency standpoint, from a tax perspective. It's also about making sure that Gen 1 believes that the wealth that they created is actually helping Gen 2 and Gen 3, mm -hmm. right? That the values that maybe an initial business owner utilized to create wealth are actually perpetuating through generations. So we're definitely holistic. We lead with financial planning. We want to go really deep with clients. And you have to have resources to be able to do that. We have people that are really good at running family meetings and helping provide that structure. So you know, probably a third of our assets are in what we call family office services relationships. So these mm -hmm. are 
typically multi-generational families, taxable paying estates, and we're engaged. We have multiple advisors engaged with Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3. But if we can bring that whole family together mm-hmm. so that when you're talking about philanthropic planning, it's also about the values of the family showing up and it brings them closer together. I think sometimes that's as, as meaningful to the original Gen 1 family as, as what we're doing from a wealth management standpoint. Yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting and, and fascinating when you think about the, the way that the business of financial advice has evolved away from, you know, here's your... Here's your stock portfolio, right? I think a lot of people still think it's that's the main thing that uh, advisors are doing. But you're right. I mean, this notion of becoming like the life coach in a way, or you know, taking over the whole picture of a of a, of a client or a client's family. The challenge that I always thought would be, and I'm I'm not in that situation, but I like your thoughts of it. How do you do that? It's a you know, that's that's a lot of handholding, right? It's like that's a lot of attention. And you can't necessarily do that across hundreds and hundreds of clients. Maybe you can with the scale you're talking about. Well, you have to have scale to be able to have the resources to be able to deliver that. It is always going to be a challenge around what you do for a $50 million relationship. You might not be able to do for a $5 million relationship. But I do believe that when you bring really smart people into your ecosphere, you have an ability to take their expertise and deliver it in different ways. So our internal trust and estate well, strategists, they get deeply involved in, you know, the family office service relationships. They're in meetings, they're, you know, reviewing trust documents. We don't author docs ourselves, but they're, they're deeply involved. They can't do that for a $1 million relationship. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of white papers and internal education. So our entire portfolio of advisors are learning um, how to deploy trust and estate concepts. You know, part of what we talk about internally is we never want a client to outgrow the firm, right? As they go through the arc of their journey, Mm -hmm. we might work with um, a new attorney in a law firm and they're more worried about paying off student loans and how do I save for my first apartment in New York? Mm -hmm. We can work with them and add value from a planning standpoint at that stage. But when they start to create real wealth, when they, you know, buy a second home, when they have kids, when they're thinking about college planning, and then that partner that's 50 and, and has created more wealth than they ever imagined because they worked at one of the best New York law firms for two decades, mm-hmm. they're at a different level of complexity. We don't want that client to ever feel they have to leave Wellspire mm-hmm. to find the capabilities. So we've added those capabilities, but it actually helps when you're dealing with that million-dollar person, educating them about concepts that may not be relevant today but will be down the line. So a, a lot of the uh, discussion here at this conference and others is uh, the organic versus bought growth. Sure. Um, you, you do a lot in the in the mergers and acquisitions space. Absolutely. You know, can you tell me a little bit about what you're seeing there now? You just completed a fairly large acquisition. Yeah, we had a $3 billion acquisition um, over the summer, GM Advisory Group, great addition. You know, for us, M&A is about, first and foremost, how to bring really talented people together mm-hmm. into our ecosphere so they can actually amplify what they do for clients. And, you know, Frank Marzano and the GM Advisory team are fantastic, ultra high net worth, high net worth client base. They actually brought some capabilities that were very additive to our ecosphere. We have multiple in-house trust and estate attorneys. We do a lot on the family governance side. They actually have financial concierge and bookkeeping capabilities that they deploy for family office relationships. So very complimentary. But, you know, M&A is a way for us to bring talent together, grow our footprint, create scale that allows us to reinvest in the business. But the, the real objective is um, growth. Mm-hmm. And, and growth, 
sometimes I think our industry has a, has struggles to talk about it, right? We almost want to be apologetic because we're so deeply fiduciary and committed to serving clients and positively impacting their lives. But any business growth, organic growth is the lifeblood of, you know, the business. Mm-hmm. It, it is the single most, most, you know, telling factor as to whether the, the business is truly healthy and, and dynamic and has a future. So organic growth is, is critical. We look at M&A as a way to continue to grow the footprint of the firm, bring really talented people together in an environment where we encourage collaboration mm-hmm. and create an environment where the advisor can truly amplify what they do uniquely. So we take a lot of the peripheral hats off advisors. They don't have to worry about dealing with compliance and HR and operations and technology. We've got scaled utilities. We've got a 20-person investment team, 25 people in investment ops. So that that scale allows advisors to do what I think they do best, which is go really deep with clients, especially in a comprehensive financial planning structure, and then be in a situation where they can go out and find new people Mm -hmm. that they can have a positive impact on. I I was going to ask if you you could reflect a little bit maybe on how your uh, strategy around M&A has maybe changed a little bit. So I think of, you know we you know them as well as I do. There's you know a ton of buyers out there who are just buying, 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 buying. You know, Wells Fargo takes a much more strategic view, you know, of, of the market. But I'm sure your strategy has changed a little bit. I mean, the firms that you were looking for are not the same firms you're looking for now. How has it evolved? Yeah, it's definitely evolved. I mean, I, I think we have some foundational components. We're never going to be the highest volume acquirer. The funnel gets narrow for us because. Yeah, and look, if I, if you're an owner of an RIA and you're evaluating strategic options, I don't think there's ever been a better time for you to be able to to explore possibilities because every model is out there. If you just want somebody to provide, you know, an infusion of capital, take a minority stake and leave you alone, there's people that will do that. Um, if you want to be a part of a loose confederation of firms and maybe get some best practices sharing, but you still have a lot of autonomy, maybe you keep your own brand. There's models that will support that. We're on the opposite end of the spectrum. It is full integration. That means single brand. It means you're going to buy into a centralized investment um, process. You really want to join a firm and help that firm continue to grow and evolve. You become part of the Wellspire team. What that doesn't mean is you lose your individual identity as an advisor. We try to amplify that. You know, every advisor has you know particular specialty areas they want to focus on. So we've, I think, created the right balance that says we can have consistency in the overall experience for the client. We can have, you know, a common brand, common ADV, all those things, but still create an environment where advisors get to, you know, be their unique selves. But from an M&A standpoint, I think there's kind of been the macro evolution. There are larger firms that are coming to market. So, you know, we've done smaller deals, two, 300 million, but we've also been able to do larger acquisitions. GM Advisory Group, $3 billion acquisition. Private Ocean, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, um, $2.7 billion firm. We've done multiple multi-billion dollar transactions. So that allows you to kind of create scale, but it also creates some, you know, different challenges, right? A $200 million firm plugging into our infrastructure chances are everything we have is going to be you know, exponentially better than what they have in terms of technology stack, capabilities, resources. So it's easy for them to plug in and get immediate value. When you do larger acquisitions, you tend to get an infusion of a lot of really talented people. Mm-hmm. They've also started to be longer down the journey of building out some capabilities, mm-hmm. some um, workflows, processes mm-hmm. that they have a lot of conviction on. 
So, you know, I think as we've done that, um, it's been fertile for us because when we bring really talented people together, it's not you have to adopt our way. We've got everything figured out. It actually is, well, how are you doing it? How are we doing it? How, what's the best way to do it going forward? Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes that's a little bit more complicated, but that commitment to ultimately building a consistent Wellspire experience deployed by really talented, unique advisors, it's kind of become the real North Star for us as we think about M&A. But the actual execution has allowed us to see there's very different animals when you're acquiring a $3 billion firm with 50 people with established processes and tech stack than, you know, a $200 million firm that probably hasn't, you know, built out their, their tech stack and, and resource pool to the same extent. Sure. And, and I'm sure you, you're taking a strategic view of this too, but I think a lot of firms, is, is, is there such a thing as growing too fast? Is there, you know, uh, bringing on too much, not being prepared for it? I, I think so. You know, again, the question I have with some of the models that I see is, you know, what's the ultimate end game? What's the strategy? Because if you just bring a whole bunch of, you know, firms together, but you don't have a real objective for what you want to achieve, like it's just going to grow in its own way. And I'm a big believer that, you know, every organization, whether it's a sports team, a business, a religious organization, you have a culture. The question is, are you cultivating that culture with intent, with purpose? intentionality because if you don't it will you know evolve on its own and maybe in ways that you don't like so i, I do worry that there's some models out there where they're they're acquiring aggressively it's not clear exactly what the strategy is behind it one of the things that i think we have to appreciate as acquirers in this industry is that the owners that have built very successful rias it's personal for them. Mm -hmm. This is like another child in many instances where mm -hmm. they have built a business, blood, sweat, and tears over multiple decades. So you got to be respectful of that. And part of, part of my strategy is as we think about M&A, I want to be very transparent on the, on the front end. Mm -hmm. This is what you're buying into if you join Wellspire. So the funnel gets narrow for us. If, if I don't think somebody's the right fit, you know, if we see things that just aren't going to work, We'll tell them, like, look, there's plenty of firms that you can evaluate that are more aligned with your model, right? If somebody is is really stubborn trying to hold on to their brand, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I have had the conversations about it. it's really expensive to invest in a brand. And, and you still have a brand within a brand, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have your own brand as an advisor within the Wellspire brand. If I just see they're stuck, then I'll, I'll push them to another model that's going to probably be better for them. But I think you've got to be very respectful around the businesses that people have built over decades. And part of the way you do that is being really transparent on what your end game is, how you want to evolve. Like I, I worry that someone thinks they're buying into X and the model ends up being Y. Mm -hmm. And that switch is going to be really problematic and people won't be happy. I mean, mm -hmm. we already know that there's oftentimes someone will sell a business and then there's seller's remorse, right? Because they weren't really thinking about what the future will be. We talk a lot with owners about what's their highest and best use post-transaction. Mm -hmm. um, okay, you're the CEO of this business. We're going to take off the HR hat, the compliance hat, you know, the, the investment hat. We now have a 20-person investment team and an investment committee. And you don't have to be the investment decision maker. What is your highest and best use going forward? If there isn't clarity around that, I think you can end up in situations where people aren't happy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you got to dig into that. Not only focus on, you know, what gets you to the table to have a transaction, 
but what do you want in the post-transaction world, right? And I think if you can be really clear on that, I think you end up with a lot more successful it requires the, It requires the seller to be really clear Absolutely. as well. And I, and I imagine that there's probably a lot of people who don't have that clarity going in, right? I, you know, I would guess that there's a lot of advisors who think, you know, well, my value is X, but actually the value is something else. Right? Yeah, and, it, and it's something we really want to probe. I mean, you know, very insightful comment on your part, right? If they haven't thought about it, you can tell immediately. Mm-hmm. But, you know, through the deal navigation process, you want to see that they actually are reflecting. And they are really thinking, well, what do I want the next chapter? If I don't have to worry about those things that I've said I don't want to deal with anymore, how do I want to fill up my days? Mm-hmm. And, and often what gets me most excited is when the gears start turning and that founder or the owner, you start to see that the sparks are flying, that they can reconnect with, well, why did I originally get in this business? For some, it's take off all the peripheral hats and get back to working with clients because mm-hmm. that's what they really love to do. Mm-hmm. And the, their own success has drawn them further and further away from it. For others, it might be, look, I really like to focus on the strategy side, right? And, and I can be additive. And as we've scaled, I mean, you know, we've got former owners like Greg Friedman, who's a great strategic advisor helping me plan multi-year strategy. you got someone like Frank Marzano, who's unbelievable from an organic growth standpoint and can clearly add a ton of value in helping us as an organization just thrive in that space. So I think you want to look at every owner and really dig deep. They need to reflect. You need to reflect. And if you're aligned, uh, I, can, I think it can be incredibly productive, right? Because one of the things that I'm most proud of when I look at the, the almost three decades I've been in this industry is building teams. And when you build teams, you got to attract really, really talented people. you got to create a culture in which they can thrive, collaborate. You need to be purposeful about it. But you, you do want to find out what is someone's highest and best use and how do I create a role that maximizes the thing that they enjoy and the thing in which they can create the most value. So that's a process that is a big part of M&A, mm-hmm. right? Why are they doing a deal? What do they want to accomplish for the transaction? What do they want in the future state? And it's not just them. It's the owners, but it's also their team members. Mm-hmm. It's also their families, right? So, you know, you really need to holistically look at it. And I find the happiest sellers are people that have been the most thoughtful in understanding what they want through the transaction for all the stakeholders they care about, their clients, their employees, them, their families. If they have clarity around that, then they're coming to the table and they're more likely to get what they want in the in the future state. But like two fundamental questions we ask on every deal, and if we don't have clarity, we won't move forward, are one, what's the value to the end client? You know, when I put GM advisory in our firm together, I could clearly understand how their clients would benefit, how our clients would benefit. The second big question is, are you going to expand the opportunity set for the people involved, right? We are a talent-based business. We don't have massive, you know, millions of dollars invested in, you know, warehouses and intellectual, you know, property. It is the people every day delivering service to end clients. So they have to clearly see that there's expanded opportunities. And if you look at some of our most successful deals, We've been able to, in some instances, give someone a more focused role and get rid of the peripheral stuff and do the thing they really enjoy. For others, you know, it is often giving them a bigger stage to excel, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at um, Angela Giambetti runs our marketing team. 
She was running marketing for Private Ocean, team of one. She's now managing a team of 10 people. Mm -hmm. She went from servicing 45 people and called a dozen advisors to servicing 350 people and you know 115 advisors with a team of 10 people. Her mm -hmm. career opportunity expanded massively um, and she is absolutely thriving. Right, that gets me excited yeah. when, when we start thinking about that. When you uh, look at, uh, you're not going to stop, more acquisitions to come, I'm Absolutely. sure. Uh, and it, it sounds like you are, you, the strategy is shifting a little bit and, and getting firms that, as you say, are additive. Uh, so maybe a different service model or some different specialization or something that they do that maybe you don't have. What are you looking for now? What uh, are there are there blank spots that you see that you want to fill? Uh, and maybe you don't know who that's going to be yet. But uh, you know, are there areas you want to move into that? You were, I mean, we're investing a tremendous amount in the family office services capability mm -hmm. set. Um, See, there's still more to be done there. There's more that. to be done. I mean, one of the things that we're building today is a de novo trust company. Okay. You know, many of our, when we do the comprehensive planning, it often leads to the opportunities to establish trusts of all different structures. And, you know, we just looked at the landscape and said, as a growing, thriving firm, we have this scale to actually build a de novo trust company, one in which we could control the client experience because... You know, anytime an advisor looks to bring in a third party, there's some risk, right? Are you gonna are they gonna deliver the same kind of client experience that, that you we hold ourselves to in terms of a standard of excellence? So that's definitely an area um, we're looking to expand capabilities. We've grown on alternatives mm -hmm. offering material. I would say when we look at MA, the the first and foremost additive thing is talent, right? When we can look at it and say they have really talented people that we could see within our ecosphere having amplified opportunities in a talent-based business, that's the most exciting thing. Okay. Well, that's great. When you're looking out on the market now, you know, clearly people have said, you know, well, markets are wobbly. It kind of went down. Looks like that's not happening. Like yep. going back up. Maybe we've avoided the recession, maybe. Uh, but interest rates have certainly gone up. How has it changed in the deal-making space for you? Uh, harder to come by or not as many competitors out there bidding on the same firms? What's your, what's yeah, your great, great question. I mean, we aren't seeing any, any slowdown in the number of opportunities that are being presented us. You're not us seeing a slowdown. No slowdown. Um, I would say that there are tremendous firms out there that are competing, so it remains extremely competitive. I would say that there are certain situations where we've seen there haven't been those outlier firms that are just throwing crazy valuations mm -hmm. at deals, so there seems to be a little bit more... Um, rational approach to how do we value businesses. Some of the irrationality, I think, with the, the rise in interest rates has probably been eliminated a little bit, but it's still a very competitive market. There's been so much PE money coming in, backing, aggregation, consolidation platforms. There's a lot of capital that, that is ready to be deployed. I think the demographics of our current industry, how fractured the RAA market is, there's so many demographic things that are driving towards continued, sustained M&A, and fundamentally, I believe it's better for the client and it's better for the people involved if you can have some large, thriving, um, scaled national firms. Mm -hmm. I'm not a believe, big believer that small RAs are going to go away. They'll they'll be small RAs that are successful, and they'll be, you know, lifestyle practices. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be some really strong regional firms, and then there's going to be a small subset of truly national scaled firms that can invest in the unique capabilities that I think clients not only want today, but want in the future. And every day we're working hard to make sure, you know, while we're delivering for all of our existing clients, we're 
adding capabilities, resources, talent that allows us to be ensure that we're one of those large mm-hmm. national firms that can meet and exceed the expectations. Uh, would you foresee yourself also uh, buying advertising space in the Super Bowl? I mean, that be, uh... <laughs> that's not in our, our in the next few years uh, yeah. at, at least. I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, I think um, one of the big large national artists. Absolutely, and. Uh, you know, I think that's not on the horizon for us. But, you know, we're, we're doing a lot to kind of raise visibility. I mean, I think from a, from a marketing standpoint, I like the way we flex. We talk about how do we build Wellspire's brand at the enterprise level? How do we build it regionally? How do we build it locally? How do we build it through individual advisors? And I think it, at, our, at the core, the financial planning, wealth management um, business that we're involved in, it is intimate and it is personal. So you've got to be able to tell the unique stories of individual advisors because they're the ones that are ultimately connecting in a trusted fiduciary relationship with the client. Um, but that needs to be backstopped by what you're doing regionally, what you're doing at the enterprise level, our website, you know, our LinkedIn. I, it, it moves neatly into the next question I wanted to ask you around marketing and organic growth and, and what you're doing on that front because I, I don't know that putting an advertisement in the middle of the Super Bowl is necessarily getting a lot of people walking through the door you know, to that particular front. Right. I don't know. Um, but you know, do you have some thoughts on how or you're approaching organic growth, uh, what you're using to do that? Yeah. Our view is you need to have an all-weather, multi-pronged approach to growth. There's not one single flavor that's going to drive the level of organic growth. I, I can tell you when, when you're a, a $200 million RA, it's a lot easier to grow at a higher organic growth rate than it is when you're a $25 million farm. Sure. Um, but we have a heck of a lot more resources and talent to deploy. So we look at multiple things. We've got you know, pockets of advisors that focus on target clients. We have advisors that focus on attorneys, advisors that work with business owners, advisors that work with, you know, women going through transition, premature death of a spouse, divorce, lifestyle change in terms of, you know, careers. Um, So we've created these unique, you know, kind of specialty groups that share best practices, exchange ideas, cultivate and, and train next gen advisors. So, you know, that's one strategy. We've got we're, we're wholly owned subsidiary of NFP. Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous set of capabilities that exist around us that we have access to. We're not a distribution channel for any other product. We're true fiduciaries, open architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some interesting things from a growth standpoint when you think about approaching a client and saying, how do I solve the next problem? So if we're working with a business owner, we've got a great relationship on the wealth management side and they surface that they're unhappy about their 401k solution for their own clients or some of the benefits they're able to offer their employees. Well, we have unbelievable experts across NFP that we can introduce mm-hmm. that can help solve a problem. And I think in our business, it's all about the deep trusted relationship you have with the client, your ability to understand what matters most to them and how do we deploy all of our expertise to solve that problem. You know, we listen to our advisors. We understand where we're having success. We have advisors that work closely with athletes and We've been able to dabble in some NIL deals with some, you know, golfers, and, mm-hmm. and that's been a, a effective. So, from our perspective, how do we put resources around where our advisors are targeting clients that they really enjoy, you know, working with? We've got a subset of advisors that work on the on the foundation and endowment side. You know, we're not trying to be an institutional player. We've mm-hmm. got a sister company under NFP Fiducian that does that at scale for very large foundations endowments, but we can be very successful 
you know, in the in the one to fifteen million dollar range, and that that's fertile for us. So we tried to look at multiple areas of advisor traction, and then put resources against it. So not just say, yeah, we have advisors that focus focus on attorneys, but how do we build strategic relationships with those top law firms? And how do we make sure we're putting content in front of their attorneys at the right times? Do we know when their promotion cycles are? How do we get information in front of them? Educate them. Uh, I think Anne's Giambetti, who runs marketing for us, has done a great job at democratizing the creation of, of content. Mm-hmm. So we've got advisors that are building their own individual credibility in the marketplace by authoring thoughtful pieces, participating in a podcast, and then redeploying that through social media. So you have to have all those components, but you know we're at a scale with a, a variety of advisors that you have to be thinking you know, in a multi-pronged way. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, COVID um, was a big wake-up call for, I think, a lot of marketing people in our industry because if you are solely relying on, well, we do seminars and we do local events and we, we do thank you events for our clients mm-hmm. plus one events right. and, and all of a sudden that's gone, well, what happened to your growth strategy, mm-hmm. right? And you, you need to be doing digital and SEO and you need to be also doing local events because you want to build community and connectivity. So. Mm-hmm. I think our whole approach is, you know, multi-prong. Well, it's interesting because we've heard a little bit um, from the stage here on just exactly that. And, you know, when you talk about going to the, the community that the advisor works in, not a community necessarily geographically, but uh, or even broadly defined, you know, retirees or whatever, but uh, the law firms. Being deep into that profession and knowing that profession is maybe more valuable than knowing the best factor tilt of your portfolio to I get squeeze a few more basis points. It, it, a great point. It absolutely is. Clients want to know, when I think about a client's decision to engage an advisor, where we say we want to become the trusted first call for you, I mean, that's a big ask. And the only way you get there is if that client feels like you're the right advisor for them individually. Mm-hmm. You know them. It's not enough to just say, I'm a fiduciary, fee-only, comprehensive financial planning advisor, blah, blah, blah. You need to make that client feel like you're the right person for them individually, uniquely, because you know them. So if you write thought pieces that are about you know, the, the unique challenges of an advi- of a attorney buying into a law firm partnership, and you evidence that you understand the arc of their career, and you can help them at every point in the journey... They're far more likely to become your client than if you just say, yeah, I'm a fee-only financial planning-led you know, fiduciary advisor, right? So you, you really need to, and part of what, we, what I think we do well is really push our advisors to identify what is their, who is their ideal client. And it's not a number. It's not, I want to work with somebody between, you know, with one to five million dollars in investable assets. No. You know, I want to work with somebody who's got 25 million plus. That's mm-hmm. the wrong way to think about it. Who are the people that you really have the most joy and satisfaction working with? If that's a business owner and you want to work with them pre-liquidity so that you can optimize tax structuring, planning before they have the liquidity event. So it saves them millions or tens of millions of dollars when they do have the liquidity event. Then you need to build your practice around how do you get in front of them and who are the COIs that you need to deal with and and how do you make sure you and your team have all the competencies around them. I was going to say, you have to make sure you know your stuff. Absolutely. You have to have the credibility and the goods and the resources. And and we backstop our advisors with all those resources. 
But it really gets down to <clears throat> that advisor really reflecting on it. It's a little bit, a lot like the business. What owner, you do with right? the uh, acquisitions. Yeah, exactly. But they, they really have to reflect on who do they want to work with because then it becomes they're, they're fully invested and this is, there's passion and there's energy. It's not just, yeah, I want another client so that I can have more AUM so I can get additional revenue. And I think um, we do that really well. I was talking to an advisor in the Midwest not too long ago and she said to me, the first answer wasn't wasn't good enough in terms of who she wanted to work with. And I, I pushed her a little bit. And then she really opened up and I could just see the you know the clarity of who she wants to work with. She said, I want to work with people when they're at their most uncertain, when they're lost and they don't know where to start. Think about somebody who has a spouse who dies prematurely and you weren't ready. Like she's the person that can bring the structure, the discipline, the organization. And you could just see as she was describing it how invested she was and how much satisfaction she gets out of working with clients like that, that's the magic of our industry. It's not about, you know, the, the specific portfolio you picked or, you know, the probability scenarios in a Monte Carlo simulation. Mm -hmm. It's about that unique, like I understand you and where you're at and I'm going to be your guide. I'm going to help you along this journey. And I think that's ultimately where the where the the industry is evolving. You have to have the technical chops. You've got to have an amazing uh, investment team. You've got to have trust and estates experts. You've got to have family office resources. You've got to have great operations people, and you got to work with the best custodians. But if if you don't create an environment where advisors really can go deep and and build that trusted relationship with clients, you're you're not going to have long term. So it's a it's a it's a slower path to the national firm. Yeah, but. Uh, but it's also not the putting up the billboard or doing Correct. a big advertising campaign. It's street to street combat almost. Yeah. Backstop by like the commitment to there has to be consistency. Like if you're going to build a brand, the, the best analogy we've come up with, and I don't know if it's perfect, but you know, Ritz Carlton, Four Seasons, like the properties aren't exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Every property is unique. Mm -hmm. But you know when you go to one of those properties, there's an expectation mm -hmm. for the culture, the kind of experience you're going to get, the service engagement you're going to get. So we talk a lot about, like, there has to be consistency. If someone sits down, down next to me on the plane when I fly back to New York tomorrow, they see Wells Fargo in my vest and they say they're a client. Like, I should know what that means. And I've, I've seen other models where it's much more fractured. I'd have to say, who's your advisor? Mm -hmm. To have any understanding, are they... You know, picking their own stocks. Are they asset placers? Are they financial planning? Do they use alts? Like, I just don't think that there's as much sustainable value in a brand if it's that fractured that I don't know what the experience. Mm -hmm. Every advisor is going to bring their unique capabilities, their history, their background. I and mean, we have advisors that are former trust and estate attorneys. We have advisors that have psychology backgrounds. We have advisors that you know, our career changers. We have a great advisor in New York who was a journalist and said, well, wait a minute, I'm learning about all this stuff. I actually want to, yeah. you know, get my CFP and, and work with clients. So all those unique backgrounds and histories are, are, are additive to the relationship, but it needs to be backstopped by a consistency in the nature of the experience. So that's really what we're trying to build at Wellspire, that premium, consistent, great experience delivered by individual advisors that have the freedom to express their uniqueness and have that impact clients in a, in a meaningful way. Well, this has been fantastic, Mike. Thanks very much. Great questions. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast 
and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RAA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.